If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3. We are stopping our series in Romans uh, this Sunday. Uh, we'll, we'll begin the next several weeks looking at the servant songs in Isaiah, those songs uh, that Isaiah pens that point us so clearly to our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we come to the end of the first section of Romans. Paul uh, began back in chapter 1, verse 18, and he closes here in chapter 3, verse 20. And so hear God's word, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, this is your word. It is a hard word. It is a piercing word. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would come now and would expose even the depths of our own hearts. Lord, we pray that you would reveal ourselves to us. We pray, oh Father, that you would convict, convince, convert, sanctify, cause your people to be humbled, Oh Lord, give strength to my voice and give each one of us hearing ears that we might not only hear, but that we might live out and apply the truth that you have written for us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In 1985, a man named Bernie Tidi moved from Lake Charles, Louisiana to the small East Texas town of Carthage to become a funeral director at a local funeral home. Some of you know this story. He became one of the most beloved men in the entire town. He got involved in city life, all the different clubs and the Methodist church and the choir and all those sorts of things. He did all sort of nice things for people in the town, particularly for widows who had just lost their husbands. He would check in on them after the funeral. He would buy them gifts. He would drive them places they needed to go. Eventually, uh, he gave most of his attention to one of the wealthiest widows in Carthage, a lady named Miss Marjorie Nugent, who uh, back in even the 80s was bringing in around $250,000 a year in oil and gas royalty payments. Now, according to most reports, Miss Nugent was the opposite of Bernie. Bernie was nice. Miss Nugent was not nice. No one liked her. But Bernie did. 
And eventually she asked Bernie to come and work for her as her business manager, as her escort, taking her around the world and all these different trips. What she didn't know was that Bernie became a Robin Hood with her money. He began giving her money away to people in the town, all these great things that he was doing for people, ingratiating himself to them using Miss Nugent's money. Well, apparently working for Miss Nugent was not easy. And eventually, here's what happened. This was in November of 1996. He shot her four times in the back. He took her body, he put it in the deep freeze. And I'm not making this up, for nine months, he continued to live the way he had been living with her money. And when people would ask him, well, where's Miss Nugent? They believed him when he said, well, she's sick. Oh, she had a, a fall. She's in the, the assisted living. You know, she's in the swing bed unit. She's on a trip. It was nine months in the summer of 1997 when finally people realized, we haven't seen Miss Nugent in a long time. They sent the deputies to her house. They found her body. They go to Bernie, and Bernie confesses. Now, here's the crazy part, as if that weren't crazy enough, right? When Bernie confesses, everyone in the town felt sorry for him. They knew what Miss Nugent was like, and they knew what Bernie was like. They knew that Bernie had been so nice and so sweet and so kind. One lady said to the DA, Bernie's a sweet man. He's done a lot of good things for this town. Good old Bernie, right? Good old nice, sweet Bernie. Bernie's such a good man. Now, I tell you this story because that's often the way we think about people, isn't it? Uh, sure, there are dictators, there are mass murderers, there are rapists, there are pedophiles, there are really evil people out there. But everyone else, including ourselves, well, you know, deep down, they're basically good. Right? He's a good kid. He just got caught up in the wrong crowd. Rarely do you hear, ever hear anyone acknowledge that their kid is the wrong crowd that other people got caught up in, right? Because why? People are basically good, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt. We're all, we're all especially good, particularly good. Even Bernie himself, in an interview from prison several years back, said, I'm not a bad person. Now, that's not the way that God thinks about Bernie. That's not the way that God thinks about you. That's not the way God thinks about me. And in our text this morning, Paul spells out what God thinks about us persuasively, as he does nowhere else in all of the scriptures. In Romans 3, verses 9 to 20, Paul is summing up, coming to a conclusion, this argument that he's been making since chapter 1, verse 18. He's been showing us why does God's righteousness need to be revealed in the gospel to those who believe in Jesus Christ? And here, as he brings it to a close, we see four elements of this conclusion. We see the charge, we see the evidence, we see the verdict, and we see our predicament. First, let's think about the charge. Have you ever known someone who didn't think the rules applied to them? Usually it's the child, isn't it, of some authority figure, the boss's kid, the teacher's kid, the pastor's kid, right? They think they can get away with anything because of who they're related to. Well, Paul began this section back in chapter 1, verse 18, declaring that God's wrath and judgment is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. But Paul knew that it would be easy, particularly for the Jews of his day, but even for many in our day, 
to think, as Carl was alluding when he read Psalm 14, that when Paul mentioned ungodliness and unrighteousness, he's obviously talking about someone else, people out there. Now, to be sure, as Dean showed us last week in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, Paul doesn't deny that there were some advantages to being a part of the people of God, whether the Jews before Jesus came or by extension and application, the church after Jesus came. But here's the question. Do the privileges of word and sacrament, do they give you some sort of special protection in and of themselves? Do they somehow give you an in access that, that, that others don't have? Are there different rules for different people, for religious people? Does God play favorites? Well, that's the question that Paul comes back to in verse 9. What then, he asks, are we Jews any better off? And then he answers by repeating the charges that he had already made back in chapters 1 and 2. No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Are the Jews in a, a better position legally before God because of their Jewish heritage or their religious privileges? Paul says, no. Merely possessing the word and sacraments in no way exonerates anyone from blame before God. Every single one of us, he says, whether Jew or Gentile, whether religious or irreligious, whether externally moral and upright and an upstanding good citizen of your community, whether the rankest pagan, the person that you would know and be not surprised in the least to see them on the jail docket, right? No matter who you might be, Paul is saying, we are all indicted with being under sin by nature and therefore deserving of God's wrath and curse now and on the last day. Notice that little phrase, under sin. When he says this, Paul is telling us, he's charging us that our problem is not just that we do sinful things, but that we are sinners. And more than that, we are under sin. We are under sin's dominion and rule and command and authority. You see, the Bible's consistent testimony is that sin is not just bad things that people do. It is a power. It is a harsh tyrant. And from birth, every single one of us is a helpless yet willing slave of sin. We are a powerless yet cheerful prisoner to this despot who desires only our misery and our destruction, and yet we follow sin with an enthusiastic glee all the way off the cliff. So this is Paul's charge against every single one of you, against every single one of, of, of every person, whether inside the church or outside the church. All of us, in and of our, ourselves, as we are from birth, are under sin. What's the evidence that Paul has for this charge? Well, you see it in the second place in verses 10 through 18. Paul here appeals to the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, to prove the universal sinfulness of man. He quotes from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. He's quoting from all, certain, all across the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, to show that there is this pervasive perversity among men with manifold manifestations of corruption, what theologians have called total depravity. Look in verses 10 to 12, he begins with this general statement of the sinfulness of man taken from Psalm 14 and 53, and it's, it's shocking, isn't it? None is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you hear the universal terms that Paul uses? None, not one, no one, all, together, no one, not even one. If Paul were to, ask, to be asked, Paul, how many people are in the set of righteous people? Paul would say it's an empty set, right? There's no one in that set. No one understands. We are all blind in mind by nature, no matter how smart we might be. Paul says by nature, we are ignorant of who God is and what God requires. No one seeks for God. Now, yes, sometimes we speak of people as seekers, as those who are searching for God. But the truth is that apart from the gift of saving faith that comes from the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, the only thing people are seeking for is the benefits of God, not God. They're not seeking for the Lord himself. No one's heart naturally longs for God and, and, and yearns for him in love and gratitude. We have no will, no desire for him. We're like a hungry man who is famished, but so enslaved to his pleasures that he's unwilling to get off the couch to find himself food to eat. Rather than seeking God, Paul says that we have turned aside, we turn away from him. It's not just that we have missed the turn, but we have been fugitives, purposely turning the wrong direction, turning away, taking wrong turns to get away from God, all the while trying to turn off the volume as we hear our conscience say, recalculating. No, we don't want to be recalculated. We don't want to get to God. We don't want to see him. And so Paul says we have all together become worthless, not in the sense of lacking in dignity or, or value, but worthless in the sense of corrupt and rotten to the core and therefore useless, like a piece of rotten fruit that you would never stick in your kid's lunchbox. The original Hebrew word for that word worthless is, was used of milk that had soured or spoiled that wasn't any good for its intended purpose. And so Paul ends this opening section there in verse 12. No one does good, not even one. And maybe this is a, a quote too far for you. You say, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Paul, I know lots of people who, though they're not religious, maybe they're not Christians, but they do lots of good things, right? Bernie, he was a good man. There are a lot of people who, who help other people, who, who do useful things for their communities or even for themselves. You know, Paul's already told us, hasn't he, in chapter two, that yes, the Gentiles who don't have the Bible, they can do what the law requires. But here's the thing, what Paul is telling us here, quoting from the Psalms, is that no action of fallen man is as good as it should be. No action of fallen man proceeds from a heart purified by faith. No action of fallen man is done in a right manner according to God's word. And, and no action of fallen man is done for the right end, the right purpose and goal, the glory of God. And so it can rightly be called not good. There is no one who does good, not even one you know, when you drop food coloring in water, it doesn't just stay in sort of one quadrant of the, the cup, the glass. It, it, it pervades the entirety of that water. In the same way, sin taints all that we are, everything that we do. There is no one good, no one who does good. It's like a student who takes the ACT and, and just guesses his or her way through it. 
but gets a 33. She has no knowledge of how to do the work. He, he, he doesn't love the subjects. He doesn't love math and science and reading and, and English. He has no desire to go to college or to please his parents or his teacher. And yet he got a 33. And, and maybe their college out there say, look at that. Look at that high score. You got a 33. They don't care about motivation, desire, goal. But God does, you see. God sees the heart. And so he can say that there's no one who does good, not even one. He sees the heart. And so Paul goes on to, to talk about those sins of speech and violence that flow out of our heart. You remember in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The things that you say come from within. Your, your throat is, as it were, a tunnel from your heart leading out. And so Paul, quoting Psalm 5 and Psalm 140, compares the, the throat to an open grave full of vile and filthy and foul words that are the stench of death. He says that we deceive and flatter with our tongues. Our lips are full of poison to harm and wound others. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, whether against spouse or children or friends or people we don't even know. Isaiah 59 says that we are violent people. By nature, we are hostile in our deeds, quick to fight because we don't get what we want. We leave a trail of destruction and conflict wherever we go. And, and so then Paul concludes in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the root of all unrighteousness, Paul says. This is who we are by nature. We live for ourselves and not for God. We live as if there is no God. We are the fool. We do not set God always before us. God's on the periphery of life if he's even there. We don't believe that our sin is this bad, and we certainly don't believe that our sin is worthy of punishment. Now, as Carl mentioned when he read Psalm 14, what's amazing about the quotes that Paul uses here is that when you go back to each Psalm or Isaiah and all the original context, you see that the author is either speaking of sort of humans in general or of the enemies of King David or of the wicked among the people of God. But Paul here is applying them to everyone, to all peoples, including the Jews who in Paul's day saw themselves as the, the good ones, the faithful ones, the righteous ones. And so he closes there in verse 19 by saying, now we know that whatever the law, that is the Old Testament, the law in the sense of God's revelation before the coming of Christ, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law or better in the law, in the sphere, the arena of God's revelation so that every mouth may be stopped and every, everyone in the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's, he's referring to the Jews and by extension, to all the Gentiles as well. Everyone is caught in this net. The evidence demands a verdict. The Old Testament is relevant for us today. Paul is saying things that were relevant for the Jews and the Gentiles in his own day, but it's not just some archaic book that doesn't apply to us. It applies to us, Paul is saying. Surely, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 tells us, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Proverbs tells us, who can say I've cleansed my heart and have no sin? The Old Testament speaks to us today. It tells us that every bit of us, every part of us is contaminated. Our imaginations, 
our memories, our taste, our likes, our loves, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our tongues. We're corrupt to the core, Paul is saying. And we are unwilling and unable to change in the least. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. And so this evidence demands a verdict. And what is the verdict? We've already mentioned it there in verse 19. Every mouth must stop. The whole world must be held accountable to God. The pictures of a defendant, the case against him is open and shut. He is guilty, 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 and everyone knows it, and he knows it. There's nothing he can protest. There's nothing he can plead. There's no excuse he can make. There's no more evasions, no more explanations. His hand must cover his mouth. If you ever had children, particularly multiple children, you know there comes some point uh, in life, particularly around Halloween and Christmas, when there's a lot of candy in the house, someone eats someone else's candy. Right? An accusation is leveled, and you, the parent, because you were not there, you don't know who ate the candy. Right? And so all of a sudden, you start hearing these protestations of innocence. There's a new child that joins your household called Not Me. Right? And you wonder where this child lives in your house. But imagine that you had a security camera in the pantry or the bedroom. Maybe some of you do, right? And you could say, well, let's go look at the film. The film doesn't lie. And you could determine categorically who ate the candy, right? Who stole the candy? Paul is saying to us that in the same way that that child's mouth would be shut and closed immediately, no more excuses, no more denials, Paul is saying that on the last day, and even this day, our mouths must be shut. We must be closed. Because what he's talking about here is far more severe than stealing someone's candy. It's cosmic treason against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And though we flatter ourselves that no one sees our sin, that no one sees the things we think or even sometimes the things we do, that we can get away with sin with impunity, Yet the Bible is clear, no creature is hidden from God's sight. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. And on that last day, every sinner's hand will be on his mouth. There will be nothing that you can say. Job, at the end of the book, what did he do? In chapter 40, he put his hand on his mouth. His mouth was closed. By nature, every single one of us is under sin, liable to God's punishment, liable to his wrath and curse, accountable to him. And so we've seen the charge, the evidence, the verdict. What is the predicament that we're in? Well, you see it there in verse 20. For, or, or better perhaps translated, therefore, as a, a conclusion, a, a result of what Paul has just said, therefore, by, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see what Paul is saying here? Because of the universal sinfulness of every single person, because every single person in the world is guilty of sin, no one can be justified by obeying the law. No one can be justified. That is, no one can be accepted by God. No one can attain right standing, righteousness in God's sight through their works, through their good deeds, through their obedience. 
because none of us obeys the law perfectly. You remember what we saw in chapter 2, verse 13, when Paul said, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The problem is none of us does the law. None of us obeys the law. The law cannot justify us. It only judges us. The law cannot redeem us. It only reveals. As Luther put it, the principal function of the law is not to make us better, but to make us worse. That is, in the sense of of giving us a knowledge of how sinful we truly are. It shines a spotlight upon the darkness of our heart. The law is like that bathroom scale that you hate. It can't help you lose weight. All it does is tell you how much weight you need to lose. Right? That's all the law can do. That's all the law does. It, it functions like a mirror. But unlike those funhouse mirrors that, that sort of distort your true appearance, the law comes and says, actually, this is the way you look. Actually, this is who you are. This is the way that you live. You truly are as distorted and as disfigured as you see. When we compare our lives to the straight edge of God's holy law, the Ten Commandments, we are convinced how crooked we truly are. But unfortunately, here's the the problem, is that when we hear what Paul says in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, our fallen hearts respond with pride. You want to bet? Hold my beer. Let me show you that I can do this, that I can go and be justified in God's sight. We think that we can make up for our sin by living in a good way, in a holy way, in a righteous way, by doing lots of good deeds to appease God because of all the bad things that we've done. George Whitfield, the 18th century revivalist and preacher, put it like this. When a poor soul is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then that poor creature being born under the covenant of works flies directly to a covenant of works again. And as Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and to his performance to hide himself from God. And he goes up to patch a righteousness of his own before God. He says, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I'll do better I'll do all I can, and and then certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. But then Whitfield says this, but before you can speak peace to your heart, you must be brought to see that God can damn you to hell for even the best prayer that you put up. You must be brought to see that all of your duties, all of your righteousness, as the prophet so elegantly expresses it, put them all together. They are so far from recommending you to God, so far from being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul, that he will see them only to be filthy rags, a menstruous cloth. God hates them. He cannot but away with them if you bring them to him in order to recommend you to his favor. Do you hear what Whitfield is saying? When you look at verse 20 and you say, yeah, right, I'll show you. And you bring your good works. Or maybe it's not that sort of attitude of, yeah, right. Maybe it's, oh man, I've done so many bad things this week. Let me read my Bible double it today. Let let me, let me, let me be extra nice to my children, to my, to my wife, to my siblings. Maybe God will then take pity on me. That's a legalistic mindset that doesn't believe what Paul is saying here, that we are sinners. And our predicament is we can do nothing, nothing to merit acceptance from God in our own strength. 
So what is the point? How, how do we apply this text? So let me apply it in three ways. First, if you are not a believer here this morning, you must see that what Paul is seeking to do in this passage is to tear down the old house, to, 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 to rid the site of trees, of rocks, of old dirt. He wants to take everything that you're trusting in and get rid of it all that he might build a new house. That he might bring you to see that you have no hope apart from the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, we're, we're pushing pause, as I said, on, on our series in Romans. But I can't leave this text without making sure that you see what Paul's going to say next in, in verses 21 to 23. Look at it. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul wants you to hear the bad news about yourself so that you might be ready to hear the good news. If you keep on trying to be justified by your own goodness and your own righteousness, your own obedience, if you, if, you, if you keep on thinking that that's working for you and not realize that it's actually leading you farther and farther away from God, then you are not saved. You are not understanding and realizing the truth of what God says about you and about salvation. And so if you don't know Christ, I plead with you, stop putting trust in your own goodness Flee to Jesus Christ. Come to him as you are, bankrupt and broke. Come and buy money. Come buy bread and wine without money, without cost, for free, as Isaiah 55 puts it. I love Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, where Jesus says, You say I am rich. I've prospered. I have need of nothing. But you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, says Jesus, gold refined by fire. White garments from me so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Come to me, says Jesus, and your sin will be forgiven and you will have a righteousness that far outshines the righteousness you're trying to patch together and cobble together by your own goodness. But there's an application here as well to those of you who are already Christians. You see, if you are already trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then when you read a text like this and you read of, of your natural state, your fallen condition, then this passage should humble you to the core of your being. When you see in your own experience, week by week and day by day, the seeds of remaining corruption sometimes sprouting out and you see yourself doing things that you know are against God's law, and you say things and you think things that you know are, are filthy and vile in God's sight. What should happen is that you should take that opportunity to recognize that the only reason you ever do anything good, anything righteous, is not because of you, but it's because of God's free grace, because of his Holy Spirit's work in your life. And that should lead you to desire all the more to mortify your sin, to put it to death. I love the way our confession of faith puts it in chapter five. The, the divines write, the most wise, gracious, and 
holy God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations, to the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they might be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, to make them more watchful against all future occasion of sin. If this past week you have done something, and perhaps that thing has been exposed, it's come out, and you're a Christian, and you know you should have done that thing, and your heart is broken, and you hate what you've done, and you're grieving over it. The Bible is saying that's exactly where you need to be so that you might stop trusting in yourselves that you're righteous, that you might no longer depend on your own strength. God is, is, is pulling back the curtains, as it were, on the remaining corruption and depravity of your own heart so that you might be all the more committed to putting your sin to death, hating that sin, and are you all the more thankful for God's grace in the gospel and all the more dependent upon his Holy Spirit as you fight against your sin. So even for us, when we look at this and say, wait, this is no longer descriptive of us in a sense because we have been regenerated and born again and converted. We're no longer totally depraved. We, we now have the ability to obey and the desire to obey. But even for us who know Jesus Christ, this text comes and it pierces us. It pulls back the curtain and says, wait a minute, apart from the grace of God, this is who you are. Well, one last application that I think is so important for us to hear as believers, if this passage is true, if chapters one to three of Romans are true, and what that means is that everyone living around you who is outside of Jesus Christ is without hope, is desperately in danger now and on the day of judgment. And brothers and sisters, we must speak the gospel to the lost. This text impels us to evangelism. To everyone who lives with this enlarged sense of their own goodness, I don't need Jesus, I have myself. Paul says, no, you've got to hear that you are a sinner and you've got to hear of the gospel of the free grace of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we must go forth. We must invite people to come and hear the preached word. We must speak the word to them. We must ask them if they want to, to study God's word with you, reading the Bible with you. We must bring them around other believers so they can see that they are sinners in need of a savior. John Stott has put it so beautifully, their mouth is closed in guilt. Let our mouths be opened in testimony. May the Lord enable us to see our sin, to see the beauty of our savior, and then like David in Psalm 51, proclaim it to sinners far and wide, that there is a great savior, a Savior who can save us even from the depths of this sort of sinfulness, that Jesus' righteousness is enough. It is sufficient. It is all we need. And we can rest our souls without fear in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are loving enough 
to speak the truth to us. We pray that you would come and pull back the curtain on our hearts. Lord, if we are not truly born again and converted, don't have faith in Jesus, Lord, would you come and pierce and expose and convince and convert? Lord, only you can do that, but you can use your word proclaimed and spoken by each one of us to the lost. You can use it to accomplish that. So Lord, would you do that even today? And with your own people, Lord, would you convince us, Lord, again and again and again, how dependent we are, how sinful we are, if left to ourselves, Lord, we would be no different, no better, no worse than the people we see who are far, far from you. Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.